I'm Stephen Gregory Smith, and Matt Connor is not here again. Um, this has been opening weekend of Audrey, so Matt is at Creative Cauldron uh, giving the pre-show speech. So it's just me uh, you're stuck with yet again. Um, we've had a crazy busy couple of weeks, and it's only getting worse as far as the busy goes. Um, and then I have an endoscopy on Wednesday afternoon, so that's fun. Can't wait for that one. I know it's better than the other end, but that is coming soon, too. Um, so now that you know more than enough about my body, let's talk about Broadway bodies. Our uh, guest today is none other than Ryan Donovan, um, who has recently written, SU alum, of course, who has written um, a book called Broadway Bodies that is everywhere right now. Um, <clears throat> Theater Magazine, uh, American Theater Magazine just had a great review of it. It is fantastic from everything that I read. Um, so we're going to talk to Ryan about that, about his SU experience and everything since, and the book. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. In 1985, Tyler was meeting Justin at their favorite arcade, Longshot. Just as Justin was about to confess his love for Tyler, the world changed. Blending elements of 1980s pop culture and LGBTQIA fiction, we journey through this incredible experience that brings them closer together as they fight against a world trying to keep them apart. Listen to Longshot on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, welcome, Ryan. Um, I'm sitting here with my husband and co-host, Matt Connor. Hey, 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 hey. Hi there. What's going on? Not much. How are you? Where are you? I am uh, coming to you from Durham, North Carolina. Oh, cool. Yeah. We are also joined by our producer, Ryan Dean Halbrook. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. <laughs> Two Ryans in the room. This is going to get crazy. Um. <laughs> Well, Ryan, we're going to get to the SU of everything, but I would love to start cold about the book that you have just uh, released. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. The book that I just published is called Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity, and it's a history of casting Broadway musicals from 1970 to 2020, and uh, in the book, I specifically look at how Broadway has and has not been inclusive of uh, bodies that don't really conform to the ideal body for or the, the ideal body that the industry wants people to have, which is changing now. But um, anyway, in the, in the period that I look at, uh, in particular, I'm looking at questions of size, disability and sexuality. Awesome. Um, can I ask what inspired you to write about this? Sure. I was inspired to write about this just from uh, both my experience as a performer and then uh, when I decided to go to grad school, thinking about how, you know, how, do, how do I write a dissertation? What do, I, what do I care enough about to spend years of my life uh, looking into and uh, that's that's really what led me to to it was just the 
the the way that I could combine my background uh, as a performer and then with this new training I was getting as a scholar. So um, it really it really came organically, and I, I did not go into grad school thinking that I could write about anything like this. I had no idea. So when I got there and realized that oh people care about this and I don't have to do what I thought I had to do. Uh, so it was exciting. So to get to, to spend years thinking about this and everything uh, related to it was, uh, was super fun. And I mean, it's also kind of the, the, the histories that I write about are sometimes painful and um, less fun, but I was still excited to wake up every day and figure out how to, to share these, these stories. It's it's a very interesting subject matter. Um, I remember the late '90s, maybe the uh, Times Square underwear photograph of like six Broadway people. Matt Bogart was one of them, I think, and they were all performers of different shows. It was either Jockey or it was Cal Jockey. Klein. It was Jockey. Uh huh. And they all had perfect. Yeah, it was all. It was kind of you know. Um, it was like the 90s, like uh, Calvin Klein ads in a way, uh, except they had uh, elements of their Broadway costumes from the shows that they represented uh-huh. and just underwear. Um, and just kind of saying like, this is the look or you're out, kind of, you know, telegraphing. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, and I think that as performers, we all internalize those messages and uh Sometimes we're we're told directly look a certain way, and sometimes sometimes it's implicit. But uh, but I was struck by in the response to the book so far have been stories that people share about the fact that they took those mes- messages so seriously that they left the industry entirely, or in some cases they. They never even gave it a shot because they just didn't believe that they would ever work because they didn't have that body. Uh, and so I, I think that, that this has changed a bit, but I still think that those those kinds of you know ripped bodies hold a lot of sway in our culture and they put a lot of pressure on the rest of us to, to look like that. Well, now in social media, you know, I feel like everyone who's getting the most follows and ads are the people who are um, sort of in a certain box. Thirst traps. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, Which is why I'm still renting. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I feel like hairspray was a big game changer. Yeah. For sure. For, for, you know, people across the country in high schools, on community theater, like, it just opened up uh, an acceptance of a bigger size, um, it even celebrated it. Um, and it's, well, it's John Waters, something like, uh, it has a quote, something like, one of the reasons he wanted to adapt it as a musical for the stage was that he wa- finally wanted plus size people to play the lead in the high school musicals all across the country. Um, just as like, it's about time, it's past time. 
Right. And actually, in the second part of that quote, he says that he actually, uh, I quote that in the book, and he says that he turned it into a musical so that drag queens and fat girls could play the lead in high school musicals across the country, which is so fantastic. Yeah. And what I write about it, I write, I have a, a long section about hairspray in the book. And part of that is, is looking at how it was really this positive show that came with the double-edged sword for the people who played Tracy Turnblad in the original Broadway production and the tour, because they were, uh, you know, casting bodies of a certain size, but then they still made them wear fat suits. And at least at first, uh, for Marissa Jarrett Winokur, they were making her eat all of this high caloric food, like candy, milkshakes, et cetera, and then making her work out, you know, as they were trying to like simultaneously feed her to make sure that she gained weight, but then making her exercise so that she didn't gain too much. And they also, a lot of the actors who played Tracy had weight clauses in their contracts. So they were their weight was monitored by the producers essentially. And so there, you know, the, the inclusion came with a price, which is so often the case in, in the industry that, you know, you, you, you finally get the lead, but there are all these other things that come along with it that you didn't necessarily think were going to. What do you think um, since Hairspray, what do you think some other uh, positive steps have been, if, if any? Uh, well, looking at the last few years, I think that just if you go to see a Broadway show, you're going to see a much more diverse and inclusive ensemble than ever before. It's, uh, you know, I think that for me, that's really where I'm seeing, I'm seeing the most strides in terms of the kinds of bodies we see on stage in musicals. It's still... Uh, I would say less the case that you know, actors, uh, plus size actors are playing the leads like uh, like they got to in Hairspray, um, certainly romantic leads. Um, every now and then that, you know, somebody breaks through like Bonnie Milligan in um, Head Over Heels and now in Kimberly Akimbo playing these fantastic featured parts that have nothing to do with um, appearance or size or anything. So I think that's a wonderful thing to see. Um, but there, there aren't very many roles being written specifically for plus size performers in the way that Tracy Turnblad was in Hairspray, right? So I think that's, that's there's still progress yet to be made there. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I, I guess, do you do you cover anything in the book as well about like from a queer perspective or a like gender conforming perspective? Yeah, the the middle section of the book is about casting and sexuality, and it it begins with a, a chapter on Lacage from 1983, and talking all about how that show cast two straight actors as the romantic leading gay couple, and you know acknowledging that. In 1983, it wouldn't have been possible to cast two out gay actors as the romantic leading couple because there weren't very many, um, right. if if any, you know, who, who could who could headline a Broadway show yeah. at that time. And um, and then in the next chapter after that, I I survey the what happened on Broadway 
since Lacage, uh, for you know, essentially from 1987 when it closed up to 2020, and looking at the few shows, the few but important shows in the 90s, like Falsettos and Rent, that had queer characters. And then after 2000, there's just this explosion. So I'm writing about that. And then I'm talking about the, the fact that oh. by the mid nineties, actors could come out and still have a career. So I write about Leah Delaria's career, Billy Porter, John Cameron Mitchell and Anthony Rapp. And just the fact that that was unthinkable 10 years before. Right. And then, you know, I touch on the, the increase of um, or the the attempts, I guess, at um, inclusive gender representation um, in the years like leading right up to 2020, and um, you know, in shows like Jagged Little Pill and um, Head Over Heels, uh, but there are so few of those that make it to Broadway that the bulk of the chapter is really uh, devoted to you know, other things, um, because there's just more of them to write about. So, um, yeah, the, and I, I think that that conversation is obviously still really fresh and relevant and ongoing. Oh God, all, just all the shows that you can't do in certain states because of drag bands. Right. I mean, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah, who would have thought that, that, who had that on their 2023 bingo card? I know, I know. I mean, those are the important issues, right? Let's right. pay attention to drag. <laughs> Lord. Terrible. Um, what What do you think, um, what are your hopes or what do you see as trends in the future moving on? Do you think that people are hearing this and feeling optimistic that the, the casting directors and whatnot are, I mean, this this book in in and of itself could help to be a little agent of change, right? Well, you know, also I'll jump in for one second. I think even me watching Lizzo's performance at some recent music award thing, like even her cast of dancers with her, um, was a a brand new, fresh take on like, oh, that's what that should should look like, right? Yeah, I, and I, I saw her at uh, Radio City a few years ago, maybe just right before the pandemic uh, shut everything down. And it was fantastic to see that. Um, so I, I yes, and I hope the book is, is thought provoking to people in and around the industry. And um, one, of the, one of the best parts for me about writing the book was actually getting to interview a few casting directors. And to hear their perspectives on casting and to just see how willing they are to pivot and change. And also that I, I think certainly, I won't speak for all performers, but my perspective, my limited perspective as a performer was that casting directors were only gatekeepers. And, you know, I just had no idea. I saw the tip of the iceberg of what they do. I didn't understand that, you know, there's this whole iceberg underneath the water as well. And uh, getting to hear what the work that they are actually doing to try to make theater more inclusive was really exciting and interesting and thought provoking for me. And I do feel that I think that many casting directors are really trying to uh, walk the talk and I, they are running up against producers and sometimes creative teams who 
aren't there yet. So uh, I think, uh, you know, casting directors are, are really leading the charge and they're trying, they are bringing in people into the audition room who weren't necessarily previously considered for certain roles. And that's, that's a great thing for the industry. Yeah. Um, and Ryan, if people want to purchase this book, where do you uh, want to push them to purchase it at? Uh, you can, uh, if you're in New York, it's for sale at the Drama Bookshop and at Shakespeare and Company. If you're not in New York, you can, of course, order it from Amazon or directly from uh, Oxford University Press's website. Awesome. Yeah. Um, well, that's very exciting. I mean, I, I, I learned of this book and of, of you, which I, I do believe like we were at school at the same time. Yeah, I, I mean, I was at Shenandoah just for a year. Right. And um, I do I do remember being there together. I don't know if we lived in the same dorm or not. Probably not because I was a freshman. You might have been a year ahead of me. But um, yes. <laughs> and and I, I left and I almost came back. But I, I ended up not doing that because I didn't want to graduate at 25. So... Uh, which I, I was a dance, I, when I got to Shenandoah, I was a dance major and I really wanted to do musical theater. And at that time, I don't know if it's still like this, but it was impossible for me to even take voice lessons because I was a dance major. Mm. And so uh, it was actually like looking back, um, I, I realized that I had more power as a student than I knew and I shouldn't have taken no for an answer. And uh, I should have said, but I really want to stay here. And I'm thinking about leaving if I can't do this because of my career goals. And um, anyway, I didn't do that. And then basically my whole cohort of dance majors left except for like four people. And it was like this terrible mass exodus. And I'm sure the faculty all freaked out and had no idea. You know, they must have been thinking they did something wrong. And of course, they didn't really do anything wrong. They were amazing and fantastic. I think that we just kind of, a bunch of us decided to jump ship all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, for some people that worked out really great. I mean, other people in my cohort, one of them ended up dancing with Alvin Ailey for several years. And um, three of us went to University of the Arts in Philadelphia after that. And um, I actually also left there because <laughs> they told me that I could that I could uh, do musical theater and then they did a chorus line that year and they wouldn't even let the dancers audition for it so then I was like I'm just gonna move to New York and wow. that's that's what I did <laughs> your some of your dance teachers at SU at the time was that like uh was Liz Bergman still there um I don't think that she was still there. I think she had just left, but I, I had, of course, the wonderful and lovely Mary Robert. And I had, um, I'm, everyone was amazing. Alan Arnett, Erica Alan Helm. Arnett. Yeah, Ting Yu Chen, um, Jane Franklin. I remember all of them so vividly, even though I was only there for a year. But uh, I mean, it was foundational for me. And, you know, I was, when I left, I was a 19 year old kid. I didn't know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think I, I was just afraid that it was going to be 
too small. I was going to be a big fish in a small pond and I wanted to be um, in a bigger pond, which, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what was right or wrong at that time, but um, I will say that the education that I got there was really fantastic. And um, I wish in a way that I had been more open to it at the time, because all of those, all of those uh, professors had, they just had so much to offer and they were really great educators. So, um, you know, that's my apology to them <laughs> for all of us leaving, you know, and probably. Well, I think it's tricky for everyone when you look at the, uh, all the stuff you have to go through to get a certain degree based on yada, 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 because you want to go pursue this. And it all looks like we all fit in the same boxes in these classes, but literally the, the real world doesn't fit any of us in, in so many boxes. Like, you know, you sure you could be a dance major, but where does that end you in, you know, a career? You, you could do a million things that besides, you know, you know, it's just, it's a fascinating, um, career choice for all of us when we leave because we use the arts in so many different ways. That's absolutely right. And I and, and currently you are a published author. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I didn't foresee that necessarily coming when I was at Shenandoah. I didn't, I thought I was just going to be a dancer for a very long time. And I didn't think, I didn't think so much about what, plan B was for when I was ready to stop performing. And uh, yeah, I mean, you just can't know. And where, where um, are you originally from? I grew up in a small town called Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, which is about two hours from Winchester. So, uh, you know, I was close enough to home that I could go home on weekends or visit family when I wanted. And um, you know, I was thinking about that earlier today in my time at Shenandoah and that like, I, I wasn't, it was, I was there in 97 to 98. And at that time, my, no one at my high school was out and I wasn't out. I didn't come out until after I left Shenandoah, but I remember that I didn't want to come out at Shenandoah because other people who I went to high school with were there. And I remember the fear that they would tell people back home that I was gay and like how times have changed. I mean, now people are coming out, um, you know, much, much younger than, than a lot of us did in the late nineties. And, um, so it, Shenandoah was both close to where I grew up and kind of far away. But, um, you know, because I, there were several people from high school there, I, I just, I wasn't ready. And, and what, um, when you were growing up, uh, what was the thing that kind of pulled you towards the arts? Uh, the, the first thing that I can remember, there's a couple things actually. Uh, I, I think I saw a high school product, a local high school production of Greece, maybe when I was in elementary school. <clears throat> and the other thing was uh, doing plays in elementary school. I, I wrote about this in the acknowledgements to the book actually, because in first grade, we did a, a stick puppet version of Peter Pan, Disney's Peter Pan. And 
I was desperate to play Peter and I was sick the day that parts were assigned. We didn't have auditions or anything. I think the teacher just assigned the parts. And I came back the next day only to find out that not only was I not cast as Peter Pan, but I was cast as the villain, Captain Hook. And my first grade self was heartbroken and I didn't understand. And um, so, you know, I actually write about how that, uh, that experience led me to always kind of question, well, why, why do some people get cast in certain parts and not others? And what does that mean? And uh, how does that look? And why, <laughs> essentially? And so yeah, that, but that really um, spawned, I think, a lifelong interest in the arts. So, um, and then I, I also, we lived close enough to DC that I could go see national tours there when they came through. And so I mean, I saw so many things. Uh, the first being uh, this this tour of Cats that played the National Theater in the mid '80s, and you know that that really cemented it for me. I think, which is um, you know both horrifying to admit now, <laughs> in a way. Um, and I was actually just talking with my students last week about musicals, musical theater in the 1980s, and showing them clips of cats and they 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 are just mystified that that was for a time the longest running broadway musical because they just they can't understand it and um actually one of them went to see it it toured through durham um earlier this this semester and one of them went and he hated it so much he left it at her mission <laughs> i oh, mean wow. I, I think it's still like, it's a wild and bizarre show. And um, I, I still have a lot of affection for it, um, even though it's become a kind of object of scorn for many people, I, I, I can I lean into the, the bizarre tackiness of it all. Cats has come up a lot this week in our recordings with different folks, whether, uh, <laughs> whether it's about the insane film. Uh -huh. um, Ryan, were you in Cats at all? No, I, I, that was one of the shows I wa really wanted to do, but I never got to do. And um, in fact, it was one of the first shows I auditioned for when I moved to New York in 99. Um, I, I, I believe I went to the, what was the last open call for the Broadway production right before they announced the closing. And it was one of the only auditions I ever did that was on stage at a Broadway theater. And I mean, I made it through like all five cuts of the dancing. And then I, you know, I got to go sing my 16 bars on stage, which was so incredible. And of course I, I was 19 or 20 and I had no idea who I was. And I sang the most inappropriate song for cats. I think I sang um, 16 bars of long before I knew you from bells are ringing, which is so bizarre. But, um, <laughs> well, I, but, I personally think, and of course, of course, this is just my own opinion, lowercase O, but I, I think when it comes to dance shows in general and dance, dance, uh, the umbrella of dance, I think if you don't really understand how dance really elevates your, um, connection with a higher, um, storytelling, you've got your body, you've got the music, you're, you're free, you're dancing. And there's something about Cats that I think if you really, really go in with this lens of I'm watching a musical or I'm watching 
you really have to see it for the art form it really is because I mean, I did Cats at Toby's Dinner Theater in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I, we, and of course it was just dinner theater. However, we did do the, the show proper and I didn't really appreciate the show until I did it. And then when I did it, the music and the understanding of why the freedom of all of that movement and um, the joy of being a cat and telling those stories. And um, I really think it's just a very unique, special um, palette for, for something like that. For people who are expecting, you know, uh, we're, we're gonna go see the musical Cats. It is a musical experience. Um, but you know, when you watch dance, dancers dance, you have to really meet them on a level of what dance really is in order to really understand what they're even going through. Right, and I mean, that's it's just, that's such a great point. And I think Cats is one of a small handful of shows that really does that and really highlights dancers. So, you know, I, I joke about it, but it was a show that I always wanted to do. I didn't care which cat I was gonna be. I just wanted to do it at some point. Well, and let me also point out that really, really talented dancers who can land that quad or land that whatever you wanna call it, um, they, they make the effort look effortless. Right. And so therefore it feels kind of like, oh, they're up there just dancing. You're you're a freaking athlete. Yeah, and I feel like that's changed a bit. That like now there's not. I mean, when I was training, I think that there was more of a focus on concealing the effort that goes into it, and to to, to make it look easy and effortless. And now I feel like that's changed a bit. I feel like dancers want you to see the effort in a way. Um, that that just feels different, and maybe that's just because it, maybe that's a generational thing for me. I don't know, but um, it, there there does seem to be a difference now um, that people want you to know how hard they're working instead of trying to make it look easy. Yeah. Well, Ryan, beyond your um, cats audition and stuff, when you went <laughs> when you went to, moving right along, when you went to New York, I thought that was very interesting. It's just this, yes, cats, cats, cats. Yeah, when yeah, you get yeah. to New York, um, what what happens? He sees a cat. <laughs> More uh, like a rat. What? Yeah, uh, lots of rats. Uh, what happens is that the summer before I moved to New York, I'm like, oh gosh, I need to finish college, and so I I was looking in backstage, and I saw an ad for a bachelor's program at the New School for. Uh, I think at the time they were calling it adults and transfer students. And I, and it was very part-time and you could do your classes met once a week. And I was like, that sounds perfect. I'm going to, I was, I should have been a junior in college. So I was like, I need two more years because I'm not fully baked yet. So I did that. And I, I found uh, ballet teachers, voice teachers, jazz classes to take. And I just kind of pieced together my own education on a really, really ad hoc basis. So, um, and then I, I was auditioning and failing as you do when you're new and you've pieced together your uh, last two years of college on an ad hoc basis. But um, I, 
I and then I moved to San Francisco for a year and I started booking jobs out there and then moved back to New York and started booking jobs in New York and got my equity card and did a few shows and then um uh I started coming close to booking a lot of shows and um kept coming close and coming close and um not getting them and then you know when they say that like uh tennis players get the yips on their serve and they just kind of lose their mental toughness i definitely went through that and then i was i was turning 30 and i went out to california and i did the aids ride the the uh, bike ride that goes from san francisco to la and raises money for the san francisco aids foundation and the la gay and lesbian center and I did that and it changed my life. And I said, this filled me up with so much joy in a way that I forgot was possible because theater was just beating me down. And I thought I have to do something else with my life. And so I did. Um, I, I, I pretty soon after I stopped auditioning and um, maybe went on, maybe for like a year, I went on with it as I figured out what to do. And um, I started volunteering as a helpline counselor at the Trevor Project. I loved that. It was so powerful and uh, life affirming, if that makes sense to, to work at this suicide helpline, talking to young people and um, talking them down in many cases. And uh, I love that. And um, I ended up going to grad school. I thought it was going to be for, for social work and that didn't happen because my heart was really in to getting a PhD in theater. And so the next year I applied to uh, PhD programs in theater, theater history. And um, I got in and I started when I was, I think 31 or 32. And um, yeah, I mean, that led me to where I am now, which is that I'm a, professor at Duke University. I mean, I, I definitely never had that on my lifetime bingo card. So um, yeah, like it was great. I loved those years in New York and I look back very fondly on them and um, the, the highs and the lows. So, so um, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't trade how I did it. Like it all worked out how it was going to work out. And um, I don't actually look back at it that much. What is, um, you're a professor of theater at Duke University. So what, what are your, uh, tell me about your day-to-day -day, um, as a professor there. Yeah, I teach mostly, uh, mostly the musical theater history classes here. So uh, those usually meet once or twice a week. Sometimes I, I've taught musical theater performance here, which was, uh, such a such a delight to teach. Um, we have we're uh, I, we are a, a BA program. Uh, we're a liberal arts college, uh, so we're not we're not a BFA program. We're not preparing people necessarily to move to New York and start auditioning right away. And I find that there's just something enormously freeing about that. Um, I don't have any qualms like I might if I was at a BFA program about like pumping students out into this industry where there are so few jobs. Um, so, you know, my day-to-day -day is really uh, 
focus on teaching. And then the other big part of the, the big part of my job is writing and research. So I, I, I carve out a big chunk of time every week for that. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, every, uh, the other thing is, uh, as a professor, I have a, a pretty enormous amount of control over how I spend my time outside of class. And uh, so every day looks a little bit different, which is, is nice. I, I, I definitely don't have a, it's not a traditional nine to five schedule or anything. Uh, we just opened rent this past weekend. So I, I, I was, uh, able to go to the opening night of that and my students produced these these projects that went up in the lobby of the theater where they got to do research into all of the uh, various issues that rent deals with and history around the show and so part of my job is getting students to engage with um, all of the different ways that we can look at at theater and not just musicals even though that's primarily what I focus on but um, to just think about like, hey, what Rent opened in 1996? What was what was the world like then? What what movies were popular? What were people listening to on the radio? Um, and to get them to even think about AIDS and what that was like um, in 1996, and uh, why Rent uh, talks about it so much, and uh, to get, to teach students, uh, you know, one thing that has been shocking to me, and I guess it shouldn't be, but everywhere I've taught, and I think, I don't I know now, but this is maybe my sixth or seventh school, young people are not taught about AIDS. They're not taught the history of HIV and AIDS. Um, they know that it's a thing, but they have no idea about the scale of the um of the plague or the devastation or you know like it, it's it's amazing that w there's so much uh lack of education around that in our country yeah and so you know for me uh it's always important to to share that history with students <clears throat> and to talk about you know and to, in particular to talk about how the government did nothing for a very long time so, and then how theater was responding in particular, because that's my, my field, but um, it's uh, something that they can't quite imagine. Yeah, that's really shocking to hear actually. Um, but, but, but not also. Um, yeah, right. I mean, it, it goes back to the, the, the conversation that we were having earlier about the, the drag bans and all of the anti-trans legislation everywhere. It's, um, it shouldn't surprise us, but it, you know, it still does. Um, so yeah, it's. Well, I think for anyone, you know, me and Steve and Ryan, we're sitting here tonight in Arlington, Virginia, just uh, about two hops away from the Pentagon. We can almost see the Washington Monument. And, you know, we live in a little bubble because we're very uh, creative. Our, our discussions are very multi um department i mean we talk about everything and you all of a sudden go out in the real world and you kind of get hit a little bit of like oh that's right this is how people are thinking about this or this is how people are treating this because you know the arts kind of creates a, a, this sanctuary for all of us that we live in in acceptance and we live in learning i mean that's what i love about the arts is you're just constantly making yourself learn about the next thing that you're doing because you 
haven't finished learning yet. Right. I, I think that's that's what the arts can do at their best is is open up that space for learning. Um, yeah. yeah, every time, of course, when we're writing a show or doing a show or whatever, even seeing a show, we'll come home and, you know, look other things up like, wait, did that happen? Was that real? Was that historic or whatever? I do have to go out on a limb for one second. Are you born? Are you a Capricorn, a Taurus or a Virgo? None of the above. Oh, <laughs> Man, I've spent 38 minutes really thinking that you were a grounded Zodiac. Um, no one, uh, well, I don't want to say no one, but very few people guess what my sign is. Um, oh, the, 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 uh, I was going to say that, that must mean you're a Gemini. I am a Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all the Geminis are tricky. Yeah. Well, you just seem like you have uh, such a pulse of who you are and what you want to be. Even when there were moments when you thought you wanted something, you, you just kind of followed your heart so much that it, I, I thought, oh, um, Ryan's a a big earth sign. <laughs> but see, yeah. the Geminis are air. So that's where the dance comes in as you always reaching the sky with a huge leap. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's why I drifted around so much in yeah. life too. The answer's blown in the wind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks like it, it looks like um, it was kind of a linear path um, looking back, but I have to tell you at the time it, it was not, I was bouncing around trying to figure out what was going to stick, you know, like as, as most of us do. Um, it's not like people, any of us who went into the arts um, necessarily uh, crave stability in, in the way that, you know, somebody who goes into finance does perhaps. Yeah. No, that's so true. Um, Are you loving North Carolina? I mean, we love, of course, the North Carolina beaches. Oh yeah. Um, Which you're not around. No, I'm kind of smack dab in the middle of the state in the research triangle. And I, I will tell you, for me, the most magical thing about North Carolina is the early spring. Um, the, just the, the nature uh, down here is so, so beautiful. And uh, today I went, we have, we have a, a big um, botanic gardens on campus. And I went there today and looked at all the flowers that are blooming already and you know I spent most of my life in the northeast so uh, you know not, not very much is up in New York City yet and so to, to be here and have spring start at the end of February and have it not be um, you know horridly cold is really great yeah and there's so much amazing food down here it's it's really wonderful now am i to assume and i'm not mean to assuming this bad but might assume that when semesters end for you at duke that you've got like a nice window off in the summertime yeah uh so uh, uh i this isn't true everywhere but at many colleges the faculty are are nine-month employees so you know it, you're essentially paid for working nine months a year and then three months a year you're off now like I'm not really off because that's the time that I actually can get writing and research done without having to think about you know all the committees I have to serve on and all of the students I have to meet with and the classes I have to teach so it's it's really just a great it's a great gig I'm, I'm so grateful that I, I landed one of these positions and that I have the enormous um, 
gift of getting to have that time in the summer to to just kind of think uninterrupted <laughs> in a way that I can't necessarily do during the, the busyness of the school year. Well, when you have time to think uninterrupted or to unwind, what yeah. are what you been? Yeah, what are what are your things that you have recently watched, read, whatever? Just Wednesday. Things, things that have captured your fancy, your imagination, your entertainment. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I I don't tend to watch a ton of TV, but um, I have three things there that I'll tell you. Um, one is, of course, like a lot of people, White Lotus. I was all over that. All of these are HBO shows. I don't know why, but. Um, and right now, big into succession. And then I, the third is um, a show that's coming back for its second season later in April. And that's Somebody Somewhere, which stars Bridget Everett and Jeff Hiller. And I think that is um, so amazing. And uh, Jeff and I actually met doing a show at the Goodspeed Opera House. 15 or 16 years ago and have been good friends ever since. And so to get to see his success on the show is just so thrilling. And uh, reading wise, I just started this new memoir today that actually ties together a lot of things we've been talking about, um, being a dancer in the 1980s and um, et cetera. Um, there's a new memoir out from a dancer who was in a chorus line. Um, her name's Christine Barker. And it's called Third Girl from the Left. And it's um, all about being on Broadway um, in the 1980s as um, her fellow cast members and um, apparently even her brother were um, impacted by HIV and AIDS. And um, I'm not very far into it, but I'm already hooked. So, wow, uh, yeah. We love Succession. Oh, um, so good. We have not done the White Lotus yet. We did. The, we know we happened. We know because <laughs> we, oh. <laughs> we watched the Globes. Because we watched the Globes. Yeah. Yeah. We just we just did Wednesday. Uh huh. Which was like cute and fun for the first four episodes, but then kind of like, ugh. and then we did the the Last of Us was our most recent, which was very good but very like violent um is that the um that's the show that pedro pascal is on oh yes yeah um when i did the trevor project um he was also a helpline counselor there we were in the same training class i think or he was he was involved somehow and this was a long time ago but I, and i had no idea who he was and he wasn't as famous then as he is now but he was so lovely and i always remembered that and so to see later, you know, that he's like this enormous star now, but he had this, this history of, um, you know, being an ally. I don't, I don't know how he identifies, but um, I'll just say he's, he's an ally of the LGBTQ plus community and in particular um, queer youth. And so, you know, that's so incredible to me. And he was doing that, but out of, not out of any desire to get attention or anything, but to to really do the work. And so that that's wonderful. And I, <laughs> he's like on every meme I see on Instagram right now. 
I was just going to say, of course he was. Of course he worked for the Trevor Project or volunteered. Yeah. I mean, of course. Um, he is just a magical unicorn of a human. Um, that's so funny. Hey, and- Ryan, do you have your book with you uh, in your apartment? Um, I, I don't right now um, because I had to send the copies that I had on hand to um, to someone who's going to interview me for a radio uh, a live radio show later this week but I, I I actually have I have a PDF of it I think if you have a question or want me to look no no, no no I was going to say I really would love I'm gonna buy I would like to buy your book but I really want you to sign it to us so we can you know even take it one step further with uh, publicizing it and saying oh look we got a we got an autograph version of the book, but clearly this other person who's interviewing you is much more important. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but that's okay. No worries. I was just trying to be kind of cute. I, I, I can, I can send you a copy. I'll send you guys a signed copy. <laughs> well, if you could send us a signed copy, um, Stephen will ask you for Venmo information and he will send you his money. <laughs> We're not, tr- we're not trying to not... I see how this works. Yeah, we're not. Tr- I'm not trying to get a freebie unless Steven's buying. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, um, thanks for that, Matthew. Anyway, well, um, it was great talking with you. Thank you so much. And so congratulations fun. on freaking everything. It sounds like an amazing journey. And like everything that we're learning with this podcast is, you know, we all ha- started out in the arts thinking that there was like this one box to check off. Right. And it kind of, you know, I mean, I, I never, I didn't go to school to be a composer and I've written, you know, so many shows that I'm like, oh my gosh, well, at Shenandoah, no one even tapped into anything about my creative craziness because I was supposed to be, you know. In South Pacific. I was supposed to be in South Pacific. Right. Yeah. I think that like back in those days, like BFA programs were not set up to help us actually explore all of the uh the colors in our uh in our personal palettes it was like fit this mold and do this and this is what you need to do to get work instead of you know oh you you think it has to be this but you actually have so many other uh rooms in your house that you've never explored so why don't we do that while you're here and you know send you out into the world as a as you know, someone who's capable of doing many things that you don't even know yet, you know? Yeah. The first thing I do when I am a te- in, a, in a teaching situation is I explain to my student or students that what they are about to start doing is studying a, a subject that combines all subjects and whether or not they think they're going to end up using what they're learning for a single um, use in their life, whether for a job or for, as a hobby, that this really just opens up a very, very beautiful world of solving um, conflict in music with a resolution and in your life and using the arts as basically, um, you know, roadmap of, of your entire life. That's, that's beautiful. 
Yeah, I mean, because I mean, all the stuff that we've learned, whether it be in your fingers or in your toes or in your turnout or in a textbook, it all kind of lives in the same little palace. Right. And that's the reason when you walk in, we mean, we were talking about this with Mary Robert, I mean, and Robin Schroth, there's something about, if you don't understand the sanctuary you're walking into, when you walk into a room with mirrors and a bar and a piano, where you can uh, transform your yourself, your ideas, your body into telling someone or some other story, you just you just can't even explain it. That's just who we are. And everyone has everything within them already, which is you know hard to know when you are 19 or 20. I'll never forget, after I left Shenandoah, I was at, at UArts and one of the professors there had danced for Jose Limon and he made this famous piece um, called The Moors Pavan, which was his adaptation of Shakespeare's Othello. And one of the, uh, one of the roles in it is Desdemona, and um, this one of my professors at UArts had had danced that role. And one of one of my classmates asked her, "Well, how did you how did you become a queen?" And she was like, "We all have everything within us, and I just found a way to tap into that." And she's like, "You could do it. Any of you could could do any of those. You just you have it within you. You just have to be able to access it." Wow. And that's that's what that is about walking into the studio and the mirrors and you know the the bar and you are you are tapping into that and um, hopefully finding some kind of freedom with within yourself as an artist to just keep the channel open. Yes, giving yourself permission. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's so huge. Yeah, I totally get it because I I, I see in my life when I didn't do it. Uh, same. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not always the aha moment. I did it. It's always the aha moment. I can see that I didn't allow myself to go there. Yeah, I, I often tell students, don't wait for permission from somebody else to do something you want to do. Just do it. Right. <laughs> you know, as an artist, I mean, certainly in, in the classroom, sometimes you need permission. But as an artist, don't wait for somebody else. You know, what are you waiting for? Yeah. Um, that permission may never come and uh, you know, your life is gonna go by quicker than you think, so don't Right, and wait. the person that owns the rights to that doesn't exist. Right. Yeah, there is no, yeah. there is no key holder to who you think you're going to get permission to become. Right. This, um, uh, one thing, one other thing I, I, in the last few years I've really binged is, um, I guess, I don't know if binge is the right word, but I've been so inspired by this um, psychologist named Edith Ava Ager. And she wrote two books in her 90s. One is called The Gift and the other is called The Choice. And um, she's a Holocaust survivor. And um, she was on Oprah, on one of Oprah's recent shows and on Brene Brown and all this stuff. And she's incredible. And one thing that stuck with me was that she uh, wanted to go back to school to become a psychologist in her forties. And she was working at a high school at the time, I think. And she said to her mentor, well, I want to go to grad school, but I'm going to be 50 when I graduate. And that just seems like too late. And her mentor said to her, well, you're going to be 50 anyway. So you might as well go do this thing that you want to do. And she did. And then, you know, she's, 
publishing books in her 90s and changing people's lives through that. And she could never have foreseen that that would happen. Yeah. And if she had waited for permission, <laughs> you know, she wouldn't have done it. Right. And, you know, I think that's, I, I'm always on the lookout for, for people like that who, um, who follow their own North Star in that way, because it's, it's important. Well, we thank you so much for giving us this time um, and allowing us to delve into your book. Um, it's lovely to kind of hear your soul and your journey and best of luck with the Dukes. Thank you so much. It um, was really, really great. And um, if you're around, if you're around the Pentagon, give us a call. We're in 22206. <laughs> will do. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. We will uh, talk to you soon. I'll, I'll get some money your way, I guess. Oh, no worries. I'll send you, I'll send you the book for free. <laughs> no, no, no. No, thank you. I will pay, please. Please. Okay. I pay for art. Yeah, no, no, no. This, was not a, this is not a charity thing. No. Um, we pay for art, people. I just wanted to show pictures and like, buy the book. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. All right, my friend. Right. We'll, we'll be in touch. Great. All right. Bye. bye. Thanks so much for joining us, Ryan. We had a great talk. Um, we wish you so much success and happiness. Um, thank you for joining us for a short time. Um, if you want to find out more about us, please visit www.connorsmithmusicals.com. That's Connor with an E-R. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon uh, under Connor and Smith. Again, Connor with an E-R. Thanks so much to our Patreon sustaining members for your support. We couldn't do this without you, and we really, really love that you are in our lives. Uh, if you want to become a Patreon sponsor, you can find the link in the podcast notes. You can also find a Discord in the podcast notes. Uh, it's a place to go to say hi to your fellow alum, and it's like social media <clears throat> off social media. So there you have it. Um, well, hopefully Matthew will be uh, back with me next weekend, and we will continue. We've got more interviews coming up this week, so we've got more guests coming for you. Thanks so much for listening. We love and appreciate you all. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.